Good afternoon. <clears throat> Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Judges chapter 2. We'll continue working our way through Judges. Last time we were in chapter 1, we saw kind of an introduction. We talked about the cost of compromise <clears throat> and how <clears throat> the children of Israel began their conquest of the promised land and things got difficult because the enemy had some things that they weren't expecting. For instance, chariots from chapter 1, verse 19. And so had, they had this fear, and this fear led them not to believe in God, not to believe and trust that God would deliver them over these people if they would remain faithful. And so they compromised by allowing the, the people that they were to drive out of the land to stay in the land with them. They dwelled with them. They married them. They worshiped their gods. They were using them for slavery because it was more convenient than getting rid of them completely. They, they completely compromised what God had told them. And so we talked about that in chapter one, verse one to two, verse five. Today we'll go from two, chapter two, verse six to chapter three, verse 11. I know that's a big chunk. It's narrative, so it's good. We won't have to go verse by verse. It's, it, we're gonna we're gonna retell a story of history so that we can learn how to apply this particular particular story to our lives, so that we can not hopefully make the same mistakes that the Israelites made. So, <clears throat> chapter one, verse one to two five. That's an introduction to the book of Judges. But I would also tell you that chapter 2, verse 6 to chapter 3, verse 6 is another introduction to the book of Judges. And you say to me, well, why two introductions, Robert? No book I've read in the last X amount of years has had two introductions. And I would say to you, that's a good question. I'm going to answer it for you. The reason why is, <clears throat> is because it's the same story, but it would be like if we watched a movie and the camera angle of that movie was pointed forward and all we could see was this angle. It's the same story, but now the camera is set to an angle looking off this way. And so now we can see the story from a different angle. And why do you think that is? That's another good question. So I'll use another illustration to help you understand. It's football season, is it not? It's about to be. If you don't, if you're not excited about football being here now outside of our wives, men, well, some wives might like football, but if you're not excited, then come see me after church and I'll help you. I'll pray for you. <clears throat> um, it's football season. So imagine me, if we were to go into pretend land, we're all watching a game together as a church. We're from Mississippi. We're watching Ole Miss versus Mississippi State. Okay, good. Nobody left. I'm good. Okay, so we're watching Ole Miss versus Mississippi State. It's the fourth quarter. There's 30 seconds left. Mississippi State's on the goal line, and they're down by six. That sounds familiar, right, Mississippi State fans? Mississippi State hands the ball off to the running back. He plows forward into the end zone, so all the Mississippi State fans think, but they don't call it a touchdown. The Mississippi State fans, to include myself, yes, I'm a Mississippi State fan, we are upset. The Ole Miss fans, however, are pumping their fist and they're saying they're saying, I don't repeat those words in the pulpit because I don't believe in cursing in the pulpit. But they are saying things that we wouldn't appreciate. Rebecca's shaking her head. I think she's going to leave soon. 
And so we're all upset. Mississippi State fans are upset. True believers are upset because that wasn't a touchdown. Ole Miss fans are happy. But then what happens in the last two minutes of a ball game? Who can review that play? The officials. So the officials know the ramification of this game. They want to get the call right. So they go to replay. And during the replay, as we're watching this game on the big screen TV, right, they show every angle. I mean, they have cameras in the pylons, on the sidelines, from the back of the end zone, going to the ball from the back of the far end zone, coming back to the other side, crisscross connected on the cables. If you ever go to a game live, you can see the cameras. So we get about 19 different camera angles. And the referee comes to the mic, out to the center of the field, and he turns on his mic, and he says, after further review, the call on the field is overturned. The runner did break the goal line. Touchdown. They kick the extra point. Ole Miss gets the ball back. They don't score. Mississippi State wins again. Clanga, clanga. End of story. So... That, that's what's happening here. This is, this is, this is a, this is a different camera angle, a different view so that we can see everything that happens in the opening stages of judges because it's going to be very important for us to understand it when we move into how each judge comes onto the scene and what each one of them is having to do. We need to know why they're having to save these wicked people. <clears throat> so I want to make three major points. But within each point, I'm going to have two observations, okay? So for those of you that are taking notes, sometimes I've been told that I can mess things up. And so people have like one point written and then I say something and then they've got what they thought were the next three points. But then I go to point two and they're confused. So I'm going to give you three points and two observations, okay? So it'll be like the letter I and then A, B. You can do it like that if you want. That, that's me not being smart, however you want to do it. So observation number, or sorry, point number one, why Israel's campaign failed. Because their, their campaign was not successful. They did not take over Israel. They did not get rid of the people. <clears throat> they did not push them out of the land. They compromised. They were disobedient. And they were, they were just unsuccessful. Okay, so why was their campaign a failure? So, to understand this, we need to make Two observations. So I'm going to read through the text, observation at a time also. So as I'm reading through text, you know that's an observation, not a point. The point is, point number one is why Israel's campaign failed. So observation number one, a people who are disobedient are unaware. A people who are disobedient are unaware. So this comes from chapter 2, verse 6 through 10. And this is what God's word says. And when Joshua had let the people go. I'm going to stop right there. A lot of you are saying, but wait a minute, Robert. In chapter 1, we know that Joshua was dead. And now in chapter 2, Joshua was back on the scene. Remember, this is a different camera angle to the, to the movie so that we can understand things completely and fully. So this isn't the Bible. Some people would say, well, how can he be dead in chapter 1 and be back in chapter 2? He's still dead. But they're telling the story. When the people had let, I'm sorry, when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. 
And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being a hum, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath Heres, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gash. Here's, here's what I want you to pay attention to. I really want you to focus in on, on chapter, I'm sorry, verse 10. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. That means they all died. And they, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. So I want to focus on verse 10 for this observation. A people who are disobedient are unaware. Well, what are they unaware of? They're unaware of God. It says it right there in verse 10. The the key word is the generation after them, which knew not the Lord. And that doesn't mean that they didn't know about him. If you were to say to one of those people, who's God? They would say, oh, he's the guy that lives up in the sky. They might even say he's the guy that rescued us from Egypt. But that word knew is an intimate word. It means they didn't have a relationship with God. They didn't fully trust in God. They didn't have confidence in God. They didn't have hope in God. They didn't know of God's great works. They didn't, they didn't know how marvelous God was. He was just a, a fairy tale, maybe. I don't know. The, the text doesn't say, but they don't, I know this. They don't know God. They don't have a relationship with God. They are unaware. How do you get to this point? I often have counselees who they, they come to me and they say things like, Robert, my life is so fill in the blank. And it's not ever a good adjective. It's not like, hey, Robert, I'm here because my life is amazing. That If that was biblical counseling, me and Lewis would have the easiest job on the planet, hands down, when it came to counseling. But it's, Robert, my life is destroyed. My life is devastated. My life is falling apart. My life is broken. My life is painful. My life is anxious. You see where I'm going with this? How do you get there? And so I either ask them or most of the time, honestly, they say it to me, Robert, I don't even know how I got here. Help me. I don't know how I got here. Well, how did the Israelites get there? Here's how they got there. Lewis talked about it today when he mentioned some of the four B's. They had a lack of time in God's word. They didn't, they didn't adhere to what Deuteronomy chapter six had told them. Deuteronomy chapter six tells them, don't go anywhere without being in the word of God. Put it on the doorsteps. Put it on your forehead. Put it on your arm in those phylacteries. Remember we talked about that? Everything you do, be in the word. They had a lack of time in his word. They had a lack of time in prayer and they had a lack of time in, in worship. They weren't doing those things. So that's why they didn't know about God. Why Why do we know they weren't doing those things? Because we know from chapter 1 that they weren't driving the people out of the land. And we know that from Deuteronomy, when we, when we studied it uh, in the opening in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, and Deuteronomy 20, 17 to 18, God told them, get rid of them so they don't corrupt you, so that you, their gods don't become your gods. So why are they in a lack of time in God's word and a lack of time in prayer to the Lord and a lack in t- of, of time worshiping God because they're serving other gods because they're doing what they want to do. They don't have time to do what God wants them to do. Observation number two, a people who are disobedient. All my observations start with a people who are disobedient. That makes it easier for you as well. 
A people who are disobedient are undisciplined. Undisciplined. Now, we use that word in a lot of different ways, right? You're undisciplined. That means, it could mean you need a whooping from your mama, right? You're undisciplined. You're a heathen. You're unruly. And the Marine Corps, if we use the term you're undisciplined, it meant you, you are, you have no bearing. You have no training. You have no, you don't know the basic skills of being a Marine. In, in this setting, in this context, the term undisciplined doesn't necessarily mean that they need discipline, which is going to come, and you're going to see that later on in the, in the, in the passage. That's, that's going to happen. What it means is they aren't doing the spiritual disciplines that the Lord has set for them to do so that they would remain in a close relationship with them, with Him, sorry, and so that they would stay on the right path. See, because their unawareness and their undisciplined undisciplined actions are setting the table for destruction which I forgot to mention the title of this message is disobedient disobedience leads to spiritual adultery and I'm going to flush that word out as well that, that, that phrase spiritual adultery out as well so go to chapter 2 verse 11 to 21 <clears throat> 11 to 21. This is, this is how we're going to see that the, that the people that are disobedient are undisciplined. And the, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. If the anger of the Lord was hot against us, I've said this before, would that not make us open our eyes and be like, man, I do not want this guy to be angry at me. There are very few people in this world that I care what think about me. Um, and that's just because <clears throat> I think my training and, and, and kind of where I grew up, it's not, it's probably a half bad thing, half good thing. Um, but there are some people in this world that if they were hot against me, it would destroy me. It would make me feel very weak and vulnerable. And, um, I would feel like I let them down. I would feel very disappointed. The Lord is one of those people. If there, if there was a time for us to turn around and do the right thing, it would be when we knew the Lord was hot against us. But we don't, do we? And neither did they. It goes on to say, and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, <clears throat> as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Distressed. Where else do we see this in Scripture? In Romans chapter one, where He turns them over to an abased mind, right? Because they're so they're just doing their own thing. So the Lord is going to let them do their own thing. Except for here, He's just keeping them and holding them back and not allowing them to move in, putting them under the hands of their enemy. And here, 16 through 21, this, this is revealing that, that cycle that we talked about. The people rebel, then there's retribution from God, then there's a, a form of repentance, and then after that, there is a rescue. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which 
delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them, and yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a, a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hands of their enemy all the days of the judge, for it, re- <clears throat> for it repented the Lord, it sorrowed the Lord because of the groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them, and they ceased not from their own doings, from, I'm sorry, nor from their stubborn way. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel again. And he said, because that this people has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So they're undisciplined. They're undisciplined because they didn't listen to the Lord in the the first place. They aren't practicing those things that they should have practiced. And so what that did was it led to them rebelling. Then it led to God's retribution. And then it led to what I would say is a fake repentance because things are uncomfortable. And then the Lord hears that and he sends a judge and he saves them. He rescues them, which is what? A foreshadowing of Christ who's going to save a helpless people. And we're going to get to that later on in this message as well. And so it all, and so they don't, they're not disciplined because they're not learning anything. They're undisciplined because all of this is for nothing because it it just keeps this vicious cycle and they just keep going and going and going. They're not learning anything. They're not growing in any way. Their lives are messed up. They cry out to the Lord. I don't even know at this point if they even realize that their their lives are so tore up and messed up because their disobedience is literally defeating them day by day, moment by moment. <clears throat> and then they have this, this judge. He comes to save them. And when he comes to save them, the people rejoice and there's peace. You'll see as we move on through the rest of this book, after a judge kills somebody, or I'm sorry, after he does what he's supposed to do and they kill the people they're supposed to kill and they overcome these these people that are holding them back, that there's this period of peace for X amount of years. Well, when that goes away, the people go right back to doing what they were doing because they aren't getting something from God, because life is difficult, because things unexpectedly happen, because they're basing their faithfulness to God on circumstance and not on obedience to him. And so when these judges die, they go back. And so that also shows that these people are trusting in a man to make things right for them instead of trusting in God to make things right for them. How many of us did that in 2020 or whatever year it was that the new president got elected in? That's how much I pay attention, brothers and sisters. I'm sorry, I just don't, don't care about it. But I remember hearing believers, what are we going to do now that so-and-so's in office? We're going to hell in a handbasket. The country's going to implode. Is G- did, did Jesus really save us from fill in the blanks? It doesn't matter who's in office. Jesus Christ is on his throne. 
God is almighty. God is powerful. God is, Sister Rachel used the word today, majestic. And all of those things don't count on who's in office leading the people. We might be American. We might have an obligation to be good citizens and to follow the letter of the law as far as it doesn't make us violate our Christian conscience and violate God's word. But our allegiances, our loyalties, our fidelities, our obedience, and our faith are wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his Father and his word and the spirit that dwells within us. It doesn't matter who's in office. It doesn't matter who the judge is. If Joe Biden were to pass today and they put so-and-so on the, in, in the president's spot today, guess what? Christ is still the king. You can't change it. And, oh, by the way, he's the one that puts that person in charge anyways. That's what Scripture tells us. So if we believe the word, then we need to believe that God is putting those people in place. Does it make sense to us? No, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. So point number one was why Israel's campaign failed. Point number two is what God's response entailed. So we know through, through these passages that we've been read so far that God's angry with these people. God is angry with these people and he has, he has stopped the progression of their victories. He has put them into, um, bondage with these people. He has stopped Stop blessing Israel with any kind of advancement of the inheritance that he's promised them. Has he taken the promise away? Is he not going to fulfill his promise? No. But what he's doing is he's, he's, he's punishing them. This is the retribution phase of this cycle. And so what God's response entailed is point number two. Observation number one. A people who are disobedient are untrained. A people who are disobedient are untrained. Chapter 2, verse 22 to 3, verse 4. That through them I may provoke Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did it or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered them into the hands of Joshua. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. Only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war at the least such as before knew nothing before, meaning the people before them, they did not know war or, or sorry, the people after the people who knew war, they don't know war now. The, the, the generation previous, they did know war, right? Because they were engaged in that war. Number, verse three, namely five lords of, Phil, of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwelt in the, in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon unto the entering in of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them, to teach Israel by them, to train Israel by them, to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. They didn't know war. They didn't know war and they were untrained. People who are disobedient are untrained. Why are they untrained? Because they weren't even focused on the mission. They weren't training for the mission at hand. Their unawareness of God's greatness and their undisciplined in the things that He wanted them to be disciplined in led to them being untrained. They weren't ready. They weren't focused. They weren't, 
vigilant in staying in the fight. They lived with these people. They married these people. They worshiped their gods. They got comfortable with them. And the next thing you know, they were under those people's thumbs. They were under their control. How do we train to be ready for the war, to be ready for the battle, to be ready for ministry, to be ready to be a father, to be ready to be a mother, a brother, a sister, where we should always be training. That's what working out our faith in fear and trembling is. We should always be training. We should always be doing something to grow closer to the Lord. He does the sanctifying work, but we have a responsibility, like Lewis said today when he was talking about the church covenant, the way we... The way we show that we are are adhering to this church covenant is by our faith in God and our faith in Christ and His words and our obedience. That's our responsibility. That's how we train. We go to the Word. We learn what to do. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the, the Word is profitable. And it's profitable, profitable for what? For teaching, for doctrine for showing us what to do, for correcting our wrongs, for showing us how to do it right, and for training us in righteousness. That word training, I I implore you all to go home and do a word search and a definition of the Greek word for training. I'm not going to give it to you. I want you to go do it on your own. It's not easy. Let me tell you, let me give you an illustration. In 2012, I got word that I was going back to Afghanistan, but I was going to go back on a, on a, not a secret mission, sorry, a special type mission, which was that I would be training Afghan army combat engineers. Now, I want you to understand something, brothers and sisters. From 1996 until 2003, I was in the Marine Corps training for war with no war. In 2003, that's when the war kicked off in Iraq, and then it was a whole different ballgame. Then everything up to that point, those seven years prior, made sense to me. When we would go to combat for seven months, we would come home, and we would have these these after-action reports, and we would learn all the things that we did good and all the things that we did bad and all the things that we needed to change up, and we would train and train and train. I have training in my head that if something were to happen right now, I wouldn't skip a beat. My muscles would naturally react and I would do certain things depending on what the action was. It's called muscle memory. These people don't have that. So I get to Afghanistan and I'm thinking we're just going to run like a boot camp type style thing. We're not even going to be out in the war. Wrong answer. You want to know how we trained Afghan army people to do their job? We trained them in combat. We trained them for combat in combat. It was the most scariest thing I've ever done in my life, taking a bunch of guys that had never been to war out to war to teach them how to do war and to also trust in them because we couldn't do too much for them because the rules were very clear. It's their problem now. I remember thinking, how do you go to war if you don't train? I remember talking about that with my friends at the chow hall. How do you go to war and not train? Could you imagine... Going to boot camp and leaving boot camp and going straight to war, not going to any school to learn a job, to learn anything about tactics, to learn anything and just go get thrown right into war. They were untrained. They didn't know what they were doing. But God in his mercy, he's going to put training into place for them, right? He's going to train them. 
or as I like to call it, trazing. He's going to traze them. Trazing is a word that we made up in the Marine Corps when we weren't allowed to haze anybody anymore. We would traze you. We would train slash haze you. we put it together, and it became okay for us to do. It was going to be uncomfortable, but you were going to learn how to do it. So thank God that the Lord traises us in His way so that we know what to do for war. And listen, so we, we see in this passage, and He's going to train them. He didn't move the people. He left these people behind. Why? So that he could see that if Israel would would learn how to do it, if they would learn to turn to him, training opportunity number one is for them to turn to him. Then they would learn how to do the war. Then they could be successful more. But would they turn to him? And unfortunately, the people would not. That brings us to observation number two of this point of what God's responses entailed a people who are disobedient are unrepentant. This is in verse 5 to 8. And the children of Israel, in chapter 3, and the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perserites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and served the gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam and, and the groves. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel a third time, and he sold them into the hand of Cush, Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. So they were in this, they, they were put under this guy's control for eight years because they wouldn't repent. Because even though they were learning war during war and God was tracing them and He was teaching them, they didn't want to turn away long enough to stay focused on God. They only wanted to turn away from Him when things were bad. When things weren't going their way. Brothers and sisters, don't let your love and your loyalty and your devotion and your faithfulness to and your worship of God be dependent only upon your circumstances. Because if that's the case, you'll never worship Him. You'll never love Him. You'll never go to Him. You'll never trust Him. Because in this life, we are going to have what? Trials and tribulations. It's, It's a part of life. But Jesus says in John 16, 33, that we can take comfort because He's overcome the world. Do we trust that? Do we believe in that? Do we hope in that? In Deuteronomy chapter 30, I'm going to paraphrase uh, for, for the sake of time. Deuteronomy chapter 30, God, so I, I started thinking, in the New Testament, there is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 through 11, and that teaches us about repentance, or what good, good godly sorrow looks like versus worldly sorrow. It's what true repentance looks like. It's what it really looks like to turn away from the world and turn back to God and do exactly what God wants us to do in moving towards Him, being honest and genuine about, genuine about that repentance. So I started to think, I wonder if the people of Israel would have known what that looks like. Because that's a New Testament thing, right? That's that's a New Testament principle. It's out of 2 Corinthians. They didn't get to go to church and have their pastor say, hey, Israelites, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. I want to teach you what godly sorrow looks like. Because if they would have had that, maybe it would have looked different. 
But we know that's not how it works, so that's not how it worked, right? That, that It didn't look different. But guess what? God is so faithful that a New Testament principle is from the Old Testament too. Because God, God's Word defends and answers God's Word. None of us need to be God's Word's lawyer. None of us work at a law firm that specializes in you know, making sure that everybody, that we can prove everybody wrong about God's Word. No, God's Word defends God's Word because God defends God's Word. And so in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, God is telling the people, when you sin and you do these things and I'm not giving you the things that I promised you, you have to turn your hearts back to me. True repentance comes from the hearts. You turn your hearts back to me. And he says, and then I'll circumcise your hearts. Not male circumcision. This is for females too. Circumcised hearts. What do we call that now? We call it regeneration. We call taking a heart of stone out of a chest and putting in a heart of flesh. We call that a work of the Holy Spirit. Because when we truly repent, that's what happens. We get a new heart. We get a heart for the Lord. And so that heart for the Lord can never be taken from us. But will we still need to repent? Even though it's been done at the point of salvation? Of course we will. I've said this a thousand times and I'll, I live and die by it. In the Marine Corps, we live by saying chow is continuous. That literally just means eat when you can. You have to eat. You have to make time to eat. It's continuous. There is no breakfast, lunch, and dinner time. It's just eat. Repentance is continuous. You need to repent whenever you can, however you can. You, you cannot not repent because your heart will become hard and you will be entrenched in those sins that keep you in the vicious cycle of rebellion, feeling God's retribution, like a made-up version of repentance and then rescue from a faithful God, but you go right back to rebelling because something else happens and your circumstances don't change. So God says to them in Deuteronomy 30, when your hearts come back to me, then I'll know that you're serious about keeping my commandments and it'll look different. So the people and judges, guess what? They would have known that. The Israelites and judges, they would have known that. Even though this generation that we're kind of talking about right now, even though they don't know God, they don't have a relationship with God, those words would have been passed down from generation to generation, even though at this generation it seems like it's stopping now. What does Pastor Lewis always say? We're one generation from this church not being here. Grandparents, parents, uncles, aunts, older brothers, older sisters, Church members, we have a responsibility to pass on the word of God to the people here so that they know and are aware of God. So that they are disciplined in the spiritual things that will keep them close to God. So that they are trained for the battles that are going to come. And so that they know what true repentance looks like. And lastly, the last point Number Point number three is God's plan of salvation unveiled. So we have why Israel's campaign failed, what God's response entailed, and then we have God's plan of salvation unveiled. 
after all the compromise, after all the disobedience, God remains faithful and He shows mercy and grace. These people, by all means, God would have been well within His right to just strike them all dead, create a new people, and try to do it again, right? But that's not how it works. God's faithfulness isn't like that. When God makes a promise and a covenant, He keeps it. There's a, there's a Jewish, I'm sorry, a Hebrew word. It's pronounced hesed. Pastor Lewis has said it a bunch. I've said it a bunch. It is my favorite Hebrew word because there is no word in the English language that I could use that would explain the depth and seriousness of that word. But I'm going to make an effort here. It's God's covenantal love. God's promised love for His people. God's covenant faithful love for His people. I could go on and on and on. I could, I could probably go for an hour just on one word and how, how just utterly awesome that word is. And because we have a God who is covenantally loving us, who is covenantally faithful to us, He provides a way of escape. And He does so for, for, for the Israelites. So we're going to see, I'm going to introduce the first judge. It's just a few verses. It's three verses. I want to introduce him because I want to show you that in the midst of these people's compromise and their disobedience, that God's going to do something about it because he told them that he would. And this is a foreshadowing of Christ. In Genesis 3.15, that's the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. So if we were to say... called the Proto-Evangelion. I'm probably saying that wrong. I don't mean to. From, from the leather cover to this page on my left hand, that's when everything was in order and the world was operating the way it should. From here to here is the battle that lies ahead of those people. And from there until the end, until Jesus comes back, it's God fulfilling the promise that he would rescue and save his people because he would send his son and his son would crush Satan. And, and, and even just this far into the book, we could go back to Exodus and we would see God remaining faithful to that promise as he brought his people out of Egypt. And then in Numbers and Deuteronomy, he was bringing them, and in Exodus as well, bringing them through the desert for 40 years, even though it took longer than it should have. He was faithful to them. He gave them food. He gave them water. He gave them nourishment. He gave them spiritual guidance. He gave them men to lead them. And they were still disobedient. God's plan of salvation unveiled. One observation and only one. A people who are disobedient are unable and that's where we come to in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Cushan, Rishathaim, and the land had rest for forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. 
You guys remember Othniel from chapter 1? He's the one that went to war. He won that battle, and he won Caleb's daughter. And then Caleb's daughter saw fit, you know, knowing that they were going to need more than just the land. They were also going to need water, so on and so forth. And and remember when Lewis was teaching a couple... uh it was probably four or five weeks ago about the Holy Spirit. He said in the Old Testament that the Spirit would come to a person to, to do a specific job. Well, in verse 10 it says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war. And the Lord delivered him into his hand. So, so what's the point? What's the point here? The point is, is that this disobedience led to spiritual adultery. And this spiritual adultery is nothing more than when we allow our hearts to be captured and captivated and we choose to worship something or someone else besides the living God and we seek from this person or thing happiness, comfort, joy, peace, love, acceptance, keep going, fill in all the blanks when we should be seeking those things from God. When we go to quote scripture, I know parents, you might have to do some explaining to your kids, but I have to stay true to the text. When we go whoring after other things instead of God, we are committing spiritual adultery. And the rest of this book from Genesis 3.15 to the end is about how God's people, how we as God's people can be guilty of committing spiritual adultery. Well, how do we not do it? What's the application? <coughs> the application is, we talked about this in, earlier in Judges, you know, in, in the first two sermons that I've preached from this. It's all about head, heart, hand. Right? It's about the three portions of our heart. Cognitively, we have to know, we have to believe, we have to think, and we have to remember the commands of God found in His Word. If we aren't doing that, then we aren't training ourselves properly. We aren't disciplined enough. We aren't aware enough. We will never be repentant enough without that knowledge. So that's our head. That's the cognitive portion of our heart. Then we have the affections side of our heart, or our heart, head heart. We need to desire and value and treasure God's commands. We have to feel the same way about sin He does as he does. We have to hate our sin because he hates our sin. See, because when we say to people, confess your sins, well, what does confess really mean? It doesn't mean just say it out loud. It means that if I confess my sins to one of you brothers and sisters, I confess my sins out loud to you, but I do it because I know you're going to agree that it's a sin. The 1689 Baptist or London Baptist Confession of Faith Confession means we all agree. We know what we believe. We stand on what we believe because of our, our confession of faith that is directed by God's word. When we confess our sin, we agree with God that it's sin. We don't just say, hey, God, I'm sorry for looking at things on the computer that I shouldn't look at. Please forgive me. Thanks. And roll on with our lives. No, we, we know that we committed a sin against a holy God. And if you're married, you committed a sin against your wife. You committed a sin and you have to confess it because you have to agree that it is a sin for you to truly repent. It's not just about, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me. That's, so that's head and that's heart. And last, we need to decide, we need to intend, we need to commit, and we need to act on obeying God's commands. And this includes us being willing to obey and submit ourselves under God's authority.
head, heart, hands, brothers and sisters, we will never, ever, ever be fully aware, fully trained, fully disciplined, fully repentant until we engage our head, heart, and hand in serving, worshiping, and living for God through His Word, by the strength of His Son, by the conviction of His Spirit. And here's the other thing. I left out that word from from one of the observations that a people who are disobedient are unable. Well, even an obedient people are unable. And the reason why is because we need to depend on Christ. We need to depend on His work. We need to depend on the cross. We need to depend on the blood that has cleansed us. Lewis said we were bought at a price. We need to depend on that. We need to depend on that God will do what he says he will do. And it is only because of him that we could even say, I'm able to endure. I'm able to persevere. I'm able to make it through these trials. I'm able to do it without compromise or being disobedient. Because left to our own, our own, uh, our own, um, faculties and our own actions and our own choices and our own thought processes, we would never choose to do the right thing. It's all about Christ. All of that introduction into the book of Judges and the people who were so wicked and they were caught in a vicious cycle and then this first judge comes, saves the people. That's the story of, of the Bible. A people who couldn't save themselves but God in His grace and His mercy sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to do what we couldn't do. My two favorite words in Scripture when I read them, I literally get giddy, but God. go go at, When you're looking up the word training in the Bible this week and you're, you're doing a, a Greek word study because you want to be a nerd like me, go, go in there and find all the places that say, but God, and just think about the magnitude of those two little words, but God. May we be a people who are aware, are disciplined, are repentant, and who rely on Him for any ability to do anything. Let's pray. God, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your your Word, which we can learn and grow, Lord, especially just a, a story, God, a narrative. Um, this isn't one of the most eloquent passages in Scripture. It's not a, it's not a sermon from Paul or from Peter, when they're calling for repentance and conversion, Lord. But it's important for us to learn that we too are like the Israelites, that we are prone to wander, that we commit spiritual adultery. So God, I pray that you would always, always call us back, that you would draw us closer to you through your word, that we would grow, that we would train, that we would be disciplined, that we would love you, God, with all that we are, that our hearts would always be stirred to you, both in our our thoughts, our actions, and our desires. God, thank you for the two words, but God, in Scripture. Because without them, none of us are here today. None of us are sitting here. None of us know of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, and none of us could even understand what that truly means. But because of you, God, faithful, gracious, merciful, hesed. Because of you, we know and we've tasted, Lord. We know salvation. We know 
darkness, but now we know light. So, Father, I pray that we would live our lives in a way that is worthy for what you've called us to. We say this in your name, Lord. Amen.